Father, we'll praise your name forever. Let us come and adore him. Father, in this season we call Christmas. Father, it seems like it's a, it's a very weary time of the year. I know that I'm feeling it personally, Father. I'm sure that many others are feeling it as well. And I pray for uh, an extra dose of energy. I pray for more hours in the day, to be quite honest. I pray that, um, that as we are driving the additionally crowded streets, that you would instill with us a greater dose of your spirit, Father, that we might have patience. And as we are shopping, Father, and, and trying to manage our way through crowded aisles, Father, that you would give us an extra dose of self-control. And Father, as we worship your name this season, that you, Father, would give us an extra dose of praise and energy, Father, and a remembrance of who you are and what you have accomplished so that we might go forth in a unique and powerful way into our world, Father, with a unique and powerful message that will set many free. Amen? Amen. How y'all doing? Most wonderful time of the year. You guys feeling it? <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. It's a, it's a busy time of the year. It's a stressful time of the year. It's a, it's a wonderful time of the year. I read a study this week that said, uh, that said the traffic actually helps with our, our extra passion and our extra exuberance this time of the year because, it was interesting, we see more lights. It's dark. It gets dark at 5 o'clock. You see the red lights of all the cars around you? For some reason, that's supposed to make us feel better. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I didn't get it. Uh, I was with my daughter this week, and she was playing with our little people's ma- manger scene. <clears throat> you, many of you probably have this. Um, and she was playing with it, and she was so cute with it, and she was, uh, she was lifting up the people, and she was, you know, p- playing with them and doing whatever 18 months old do with the toys and whatnot. But I, I was looking at this manger scene, and I was like, man, you know, we, we portray this scene in really comfortable ways. Everyone's got this nice smile on their face, and the baby Jesus has this huge grin, and he's cuddled up nice and tight. And I'm like, man, I think we do a disservice in some ways to the, uh, to the story of Christmas by having such comfortable nativity scenes. And it's not just this one. I, I'm sure that a lot of you have nativity scenes around your house or, or maybe you've seen several on Christmas cards and whatnot. And, and all of a sudden we get this idea that this was a comfortable experience for all involved. That maybe there wasn't a lot of uncomfortability. Maybe this is a really happy time, Right? I want to point out a few things about may of what have happened uh, during, during that first Christmas night. First, you have to realize that uh, nativity scenes don't portray smell very well. You have to realize that they were not in this clean barn, right? They were in probably what was a cave in the back of someone's yard. And uh, it was full of wild animals, or domesticated animals, I suppose, of donkeys and goats and horses, cows, mules. Maybe some camels. And they lived in this barn or this cave. <laughs> and they did what animals do inside of that cave. And I can't imagine it smelled very well. For any of you who have ever been inside a barn before, you know that they don't have the most pleasant smells. And so nativity scenes don't portray smells very well. And then they placed Jesus in what we call a manger, which was really a feeding trough. And so they probably gathered up whatever hay there was on the ground, and they put it inside this feeding trough. But the feeding trough probably still had remnants of the previous day's slop within it. And so Jesus, our Savior of the world and the King of Kings, is born into this 
cave where he is placed into a feeding trough. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you can't just like train animals in an instance to stop going to where they know food is. And so Jesus is getting like licked all night long, right? That's probably what was taking place. The, the Jer- Mary and Joseph probably had to bat, bat the animals away from Jesus all night long. Don't come near my son, right? Probably was very, a little uncomfortable. Besides, it was very cold. It was probably damp. The, the cave walls were cold in and of themselves, but one of the entire walls of this place was missing. And so the breeze would come in, and they were suffering, shivering in the cold. We don't really see any of that in our cute little manger scenes. But really, more importantly, what this really doesn't convey is that from the day Jesus was born, Jesus was a marked man. He had a price on his head, and from the day he was born, he was a marked man. People everywhere around the world, immediately from the day he was born, found him to be a threat. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to Matthew chapter 2. We are continuing our series, The Most Wonderful Time of the Year, starting at verse 13. You know, if you don't have a Bible with you, but you have a smartphone, I would encourage you to take those out as well. You're probably not going to hear that very often in public gatherings. But uh, there's an app called YouVersion. There are several other Bible apps. I'd encourage you, if you do not have the Bible app on your phone, take out your Bible, uh, your, your smartphone, get it on your phone. It is a great way to have the Bible with you everywhere you go. It makes it very convenient. It's also very easy to find Matthew chapter 2, for instance, in a Bible app. While you're looking for Matthew chapter 2, let me tell you about the context. <clears throat> We've heard the last two weeks, right? The Magi followed a series of interplanetary events to the town of Bethlehem in Judea. But first they went to where they knew kings would be born. They went to Jerusalem, to the capital city of Jerusalem. But the king, who was Herod at the time, he wasn't aware that a king had been born. This is a surprise to him, and he said, Hey, Magi, why don't you go find the king, who we are told by the scribes will be born in Bethlehem. Go find the king, and when you find him, come and report back to me, because I want to go and worship him as well. Of course, we know better. We know that he wanted to do what? Kill him, because he was a ruthless king, and we'll get to that later. After the Magi visit Jesus, they prepare to leave, but they're told in a dream that they should not go back to Jerusalem. Instead, they should go home by another route, and so that is exactly what they do. We pick up the story in verse 13 of chapter 2. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with what the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Father, we do ask as as we open up your word this morning that you would enlighten us, Father, that you would give me words to speak, that you would open our ears and open our eyes and open our mouths, Father, that we might hear and understand and then in turn proclaim. Father, penetrate our hearts this morning. May your presence be among us and your spirit guide us this morning. Amen. And so before the Prince of Peace could walk, he was a homeless refugee with a price on his head. From an early age, he and his family had to run from the sword. We see that with Herod. 
They had to abandon the life they knew in order to cover in safety. And so there was really very little about their very young years that was comfortable and appealing. Like our manger scenes indicate, right? Jesus was a targeted man and who would grow to be a targeted man. His whole life was full of uncomfortable situations and challenging situations. But this is how the Messiah was to appear. Right? If you think about the God of heaven, right? The the ruler and the creator of all the earth. He humbled himself to the point where he was conceived of a woman, and he was reliant on nine months by that woman to feed and to take care of him as he grew in the womb. And then when he was an, uh, an infant, still for that woman to take care of him, to clothe him, to feed him appropriately, to make sure that he was warm and well-fed. All the reliant and everything that he did, right, the fact that he would grow into this man who would take upon our sins and die on the cross. He'd not just do all of this. He'd not just come into our world to give us a, a better spirituality. He didn't just do all this so that we, by the end of our lives, might be moral people. That we might treat our neighbors with more respect. Right? He went into his good creation that he loved, but had been twisted and contorted and broken and warped. And saturated in sin and death. And he did all of this, right? He did all of this infancy, this birth and this raising and dying on a cross. So that through his work... That world that is broken and upside down and twisted and mourning might be brought to hope and to life and to restoration and to recreation. That is why he did all this, so that the world might be made right. So I think of all the households, right, where little girls are sitting on their stairs and, and in secret and they're watching their mom and dad scream at each other. It's not that hard to imagine that this happens in our own neighborhoods, maybe even in your own households. Well, the story of Christmas is about how peace infiltrated that situation. And then I think of all the homeless camps that fear for the coming winter because they don't have adequate shelter, they don't have adequate clothing. And the infancy of Jesus and the birth of God into our world addresses the hope that they long for. Then I think of all the kids who go to school every day and like they think, man, you know, I'm not going to be loved or accepted or desired unless I know I make the sports team, unless I get the grade, unless I get asked to the prom. And the infancy of Jesus in this season addresses the very question of how does that little school child feel loved in this world? And in marriage is shattered by selfishness and dried up with concern for the other. That only know of screaming and yelling and frustration within households. Well, the birth of Jesus Christ into our world addresses how that couple might feel peace. You see, the beauty of Christmas is that this is how God is going about setting the world right. This is how he's taking all the chaos and the brokenness and the frustration. He's he's taking care of it, bringing justice into the world. This is how God is liberating his people. And from the very day that Jesus was born into our world, that is what his agenda was. So for God to be among his people, right? He is the Emmanuel. There's no point in him coming into a palace. He needs to be where the pain is. God comes into the world where the frustration is. God comes into the world where the horror is. He goes into the pain so that he might bring healing. He comes into the horror so that he might bring peace and hope. 
He comes into the horrible, unjust, oppressive situation so that his justice might reign and the world that he knows and that we know is upside down and broken and in bondage might be flipped right back side up. Do you guys long for that? Do you think the households in our communities long for that? They don't even know Jesus and they long for it. They know they're broken. We know our households are screwed up. We know we're messed up. We know that there's pain and suffering and oppression in our world. We long for it. And that is what Jesus came to address in the infancy. God is releasing his people from bondage of sin and of death. And this double mission of liberation and of recovery is exactly what Matthew was trying to convey here. That in the infancy and the birth of Jesus, that is what God came to address. And so there were two events in Israel's history that Matthew is emulating here. And it was the long-awaited hope of the Israelites that, that these two symbolic actions that took place way in their past would have a grand scale action that God would one day liberate his people through a new exodus and through a new return from exile. And so we read in Matthew two thirteen through 18, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I have called my son. You know, Herod was paranoid. He always had been paranoid. He had fought and clawed his way to power in Judea in ways that would put most politicians in our day and age to shame. He functioned as the rice ruler of Judea under uh, Augustus the Caesar, and he proclaimed himself king of the Jews. Now the problem was that Herod was only half Jewish, and so he didn't have the trust of his own people because he really wasn't a full-blooded Jew. It didn't help that he was also a ruthless murderer, when his aristocracy, the, the wealthy ruling class, opposed him, he killed 45 of them, and then he raided their household so that he could replenish his coffers with their gold. He had his first wife executed, and shortly thereafter, her mother. He had three of his own sons executed because he was suspicious that they were planning on taking over his throne. He ordered that the leading citizens of Jericho be slaughtered upon his death so that there would be mourning during his death. It was ironic, though, that they were actually released upon his death, and so there was great celebration, which is probably more appropriate. Herod would not have cared the slightest in killing 20 to 30 babies if he knew that one of these 20 to 30 children would be destined to take over his throne. And so Joseph is warmed in a dream that he and his family must escape to Egypt. But Egypt was roughly 200 miles from Jerusalem, or from Bethlehem. It was through barren, harsh land, and it would take about two weeks to make this trip. They probably joined up with a caravan of other Jewish travelers going down to Alexandria, where there were one million Jews at this time. They would have had a community there. They would have had a people that they could have clung to and celebrated uh, the Passover with. And, and, and have been a great Jewish community there. And so they knew that they were not alone. And plus they had been supplied with expensive gifts by the Magi. And so they had resources to live off of. It's interesting that in this time when Joseph, Mary, and Jesus found themselves in Egypt, the world has taken this time and they have tried to delegitimize Jesus because of his time in Egypt. They've done this through telling all sorts of fanciful, fairy tale like stories that have uh, arisen out of their time 
in Jesus. And so we get these comfortable nativity scenes, right? We get these nativity scenes that portray for us a certain uh, impression of what happened during that first Christmas morning. And they're intended, I think, by a conniving, clever work of the devil to trick us into thinking that it was clever or uncomfortable. I think they do the same with the trip down into the uh, Egyptian land. For instance, over the next 300 years, a lot of stories are going to start popping up, a lot of fairy tales of what were going to happen. One story tells of how the infant Jesus noticed that his mother was hungry. This is upon their travel. The infant Jesus notices that his mother is hungry, and, and so he makes a date tree bend over so that she might be fed. There was a story about how the bath water of the infant Jesus would cleanse lepers. There's a story of how Jesus and his mother walked into a pagan temple and immediately all the pagan idols jumped off the shelves and broke. Mass idol suicide. There was a story of how uh, the, uh, the family, the holy family, was sitting in a cave uh, trying to rest and gain strength for the journey. And a spider noticing that the infant Jesus was cold, he begins to spin a web over the mouth of the cave so that the wind would stop the cave. And not make them any more cold than they already were. But it goes beyond this, right? There were stories of how Jesus learned sorcery down in Egypt. And that was really the source of his miraculous power. There were stories about how he was tattooed from head to toe. And he used all these tattoos as incantations that he would remember to do all of the miraculous things that he did. And so what do these tell us, right? It tells us that we live in a society that is trying to delegitimize Jesus. I mean, how, how, how many of us join the campaign to keep Christ in Christmas? We try to delegitimize Jesus. We try to make him into a fairy tale. We try to make him comfortable and appealing. Like, we try to make him like just one of the movies that we go to, like Into the Woods, right? Nobody, nobody is going to believe on Christmas Day that Into the Woods actually took place as a historical event. That there's a little man named... Um, who climbed the beanstalk? Jack climbed the beanstalk, right? That there was a giant beanstalk that rose out of the ground and he climbed up and he started walking around on clouds and he found a giant up there. Nobody believes that to be true. Nobody believes that deep in the woods somewhere back in our history there was a girl who had super long hair and she could, you know, let her princess climb up it. Nobody believes these things. Those are fairy tales, we say. And Jesus, well, wasn't he just another fairy tale? I mean, that's what the stories make it sound like spiders noticing that he's cold and so they spin a web for him right his 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 bath water curing lepers he's just a fairy tale we delegitimatize him he can't be true he can't be the real son of god he doesn't have any hope he doesn't there, there's nothing this infant child can do for me that is the world that we live in one of great, satan's greatest tricks i think is for us to make a mockery of the infant jesus and the hope that he brings Let's paint this picture of Jesus that nobody could possibly believe. Let's keep the truth buried under superstition. Let's keep the truth buried under the fairy tales. Let's keep the truth buried under this make-believe that nobody could possibly buy into. But on the other hand, there's this guy named Santa, right? And, and Santa Claus, I mean, you know, he lives up in the North Pole. And uh, he has magic elves who make millions upon millions of toys. And he rides around on a magic sleigh pulled by magic reindeer who fly throughout the night. And in a single night, he drops millions and millions of presents individually to every single household down magic chimneys. But don't tell me Santa's not real. 
Don't tell me, don't tell me not to, to believe in Santa. Because he's really the Christmas spirit. You don't stifle the Christmas spirit. Don't tell me Santa's not real. Don't stifle that. That's, that's the hope of Christmas. That's the joy of Christmas. Don't stifle that. But Jesus, <laughs> you really want me to buy into that fairy tale? Really? But we need to talk about Jesus. Because those same households who say Santa is the real reason of Christmas, that he's the Christmas spirit and that, that it's him that brings joy to our households, they're the same households that are suffering under the bickering and the tyranny and the agony and the pain and the frustration of yelling at each other. And so we need to talk about Jesus, right? Because there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no other hope for the world. It is in this infant child, the one who would take away the sins of the world, that we place our hope this Christmas season. Because we live in a world that is twisted and in bondage, and if not for Jesus, then there is no hope this Christmas season. And the Jewish people of Jesus' day knew all this. They had been longing for this new exodus, this grand-scale exodus, that God would one day again reenact the exodus, not out of Egypt, but out of the sin and the suffering and the tyranny of death. They knew it because every single year they celebrated the Passover. And they were reminded of what God had done. And they were reminded of what God would one day do again in liberating them from the bondage. And they knew they were in bondage because they knew that they lusted after their neighbors. They knew that they coveted what their neighbors had. They knew that they were under the oppression of the Romans. They knew that life was not right, that life was not whole, that there was still agony, that there was still death. And so they knew that they were in bondage and they were waiting for this exodus of God to release them from that bondage. They knew in their bones the history and what God was going to do. So what Matthew was so eager to address in Jesus' family going down to Egypt is not what the world has tried to paint it in, these pictures of fanciful fairy tales. No, Matthew was so eager to address that in his family going down to Egypt, the entire Old Testament story and their hope for the Exodus is being reimagined around this little baby boy. The grand-scale exodus of God's good creation from its bondage is taking place in this child and this infant. And so when he says, out of Egypt, I called my son, he's quoting Hosea 11, which is, of course, referring to the exodus. Jesus has taken the role of Israel and fulfilling through that role the grand scheme exodus that the Israelites had always hoped for. He is the liberation of the world from bondage and of sin and of death. And that really, in this section, is what Matthew was so eager to communicate. That in this story is not just this fanciful tale. It's not a fairy tale being told. It is the very hope of the world, and it is what the Israelites had always been longing for. But here's what becomes so challenging about the biblical story and the biblical world. Jesus is the Son of God. And in the biblical world and in the biblical story, the son always apprenticed the father. The son learns his trade from the father. The son takes on the same role as the father. And so in the same way that the father was the liberator of the Jews, 
and the Israelites out of Egypt, so the Son now becomes the liberator of his people out of sin. The Son, the children, apprentice, the Father, and I hope as you hear those words, it makes you really uncomfortable. That's a weird thing to say, right? That I hope it makes you uncomfortable. Because within our Christian tradition, we have this certain prayer that we pray often. We have this certain prayer that we pray often, and many of you have probably prayed it. I pray it regularly. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Any of you ever prayed the Lord's Prayer before? How does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father. What what are we declaring when we say our Father? What, What do you mean by that when you say that? When you pray that, that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, what are we saying? We are saying we are sons. We are daughters. We are children. We have been adopted. We are legitimate children of the Father in heaven. And now what is our responsibility? If the Son apprentices the Father, what is our responsibility? We too, as children of God, are called to be liberators. We too, as children of God, are called to be liberators. We are called to be grand-scale exodus people. Right, but for so long, and I, and I grew up as a Christian, right? I became a Christian when I was about 16 or 17. And my immediate belief, what the Christian faith was all about, was about how I could gain a personal spirituality. How my own spirituality might be heightened, and my own spirituality might be advanced. And so what did I do? I, I read the Bible, and I prayed, and I attended church so that I could be a better person. So that my character would be developed. So that my morals would be established. It's all about having a personal savior, I was told. And so I did my personal devotions. I had my personal quiet time. I had a personal savior. And I didn't involve myself with the community. That's not what it's about, I was told. I was told it was all about me and how I was advancing personally and spiritually. Nobody told me that I was a liberator. Nobody told me that my role now as a Christian was to go into the world and be an Exodus-type person. That I had a responsibility to release the world from the bondage it found itself in? I had my personal spirituality. I was growing as a Christian. That's all it took. That's all that was mandated of me. That's all that was necessary. But that is not the package God is offering his people. Do you guys get that? That's not the package God is offering his people. God is offering utter and total freedom from sin and bondage and death. And in this infant child and the life that he will live, very much including his death and resurrection, he is setting humanity and his wayward creation free from the tyranny of death and destruction. He didn't come to simply offer a new way of being moral. He said, I'm going to recreate the whole world by a new exodus and by returning my people from the grand scale exile. I'm going to recreate the whole world, and under that umbrella, then I'm going to recreate you as an individual. Under that umbrella, I'm going to transform you into a new type of character, into a new type of person. And under that umbrella, the grand-scale Exodus umbrella, then I'm going to place you as a reformed Exodus person into that umbrella, and I'm going to throw you into the world so that you can do a good work. Does that Does that excite anybody or does it make you scared to death? That God's new exodus, his liberation, his his hope for the world now runs through you? Oh man, that's scary. Oh man, I don't know if I'm up for it. 
We're an Exodus people. And that's what being son is all about. That's what being a daughter of the king is all about. We're liberators. We have a responsibility then. Total and utter recreation of all things. A beautiful hope for the broken households around us. And he's given us a responsibility to implement it. And if you have ever agreed as you say that prayer that our Father, that you are my Father, that as a son and as a daughter, we have a responsibility to pair with Jesus, our big brother, in doing what he has accomplished. We are God's hands and feet to bring about justice where oppression once reigned. We are God's hand and feet to bring wholeness to where brokenness is. Because as the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us, we have a responsibility then to be resurrection people. I love how Paul says that in, uh, to the Corinthian church. He says that the love of Christ compels me. That, that I, I can't even help it, but I'm compelled to what? To be a reconciler of God to his world. And that is what we're about as well. And so if you want a, a model of Christianity, of Christian spirituality that is a, a private advancement of your own walk, if, if you think just surrendering to Christ is going to make you just a better person and then you can be isolated doing your personal devotions and having your personal quiet time and having a personal Savior and it's only just about you and how you're advancing in this world, it's not what God is offering. What he's asking is for us to stand in the presence of the Emmanuel as he invades the pain. And to get down on our knees and pray for his presence into that pain. It's to get down on our knees in the midst of the horror and the chaos and the brokenness of households and to pray for the Emmanuel, the presence of God, to be among it. So that his restoration, that his wholeness might find its place there as well. It is standing under the blood-soaked cross and realizing that we are a participation of putting him there. As our sin and our rebellion and our death for which he took upon his cross and placed on the cross, it is standing before the blood-soaked cross realizing that forgiveness has dripped down upon us and changed us and made us whole and we have been restored and renewed and all of a sudden now we do not live for ourselves but we live for the world. That is what Christmas is all about. The mission and the identity of the church, very much, I hope, including Restoration Church, can be summed up in this one word, Father. For that is who we are, sons, and that is what we are called into, liberators. We have a responsibility to be an Exodus people, right? God is liberating his people from the injustice and the lies of the world, and we have a responsibility to go go forth with him into it. There's this other component that he mentions as well in this section, right? We have the exodus on the one hand, and we have the exile on the other hand. The passage in Matthew continues by saying, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew probably recognized that Rachel's tomb was in Bethlehem, and so he, he imagined Rachel weeping from her tomb as all these children were being slaughtered above her. But because he says that this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus, the infant, in the, in the destruction of these babies, 
there has to be alluding to something more. And so in Jeremiah 31, if you were to go back to where this passage took place, you would find that it's all about Israel and exile and their hope for being liberated and brought back to the land that God had promised them. So the Israelites had gone into exile in 586 BC. Babylon had come and destroyed Jerusalem, and they had destroyed the temple along with it. And they gathered all of the Jewish people and brought them back to Babylon. This happened, we are told, because Israelites sin. But God promised that one day he would take his wayward people and he would restore them back to the land, the promised land that he had given them. One day I will bring you back and I will be with you. I will reign among you. I will be your king and you will be my people. That's what the hope of the exile was all about. God's presence and his reign being among his people. And so the Israelites do eventually go back. They eventually do go back. They build the city. They rebuild the temple. But they immediately realize that God's reign was not among them. That even though the people had come back, God had not, right? They were still under the oppressive rule of uh, the first the Persians and then the Greeks and then in Jesus' day the Romans. And we're still under the hard, oppressive hands of these pagan nations, God. We have come back from exile, but you have not. And so they're awaiting this mass, grand-scale return from exile where God would once again reign and dwell among his people. And so what Matthew is saying by quoting Jeremiah 31 is that in Jesus' birth, in this infant baby Jesus lying in this manger, going down into Egypt and coming back, quoting Jeremiah 31, in Jesus is the return from exile. I am once again among my people. I am reigning. I am the king of kings and lord of lords. I am once again my people. The grand scale return from exile has taken place in Jesus the Christ. This is the new beginning of David's house. And in Jesus the Christ, right? The baby Jesus. God is providing a salvation and a rescue for the world. He's inviting the whole world to bow down to him so that it might be restored. As we worship this baby Jesus, he is inviting the whole world to come before this throne in the shape of a manger and realize here where that liberation is found, that the grand scale exodus is happening here, that the return from exile is happening here, that freedom from death and decay is happening here. Think of the year 2014. Have a little flashback, right? We live in a world where ISIS exists, strangling out all who oppose the Islamic belief. They would go on public television, worldwide public television, and behead all those who were opposed to them. Children, women, men, it didn't matter who they were, they'd behead them publicly. You think the world is in bondage? You think those families who are fearful and running for their lives in Syria right now are in bondage? To the decay, not of necessarily the ISIS regime, but sin? We live in a world where radical tension exists in radical fashion. Where entire communities would burn down streets and riot their their neighbors and, and pillage their neighbors' stores because they didn't believe with a particular respect. judgment call among juries. 
think the, pers- the people of Ferguson, Missouri, believe that this world is still in bondage? You think that they're, they're still feeling that this tyranny of sin still exists in this world? That they're longing for hope to be released from something? We live in a world where airlines filled with 239 loved ones go missing without a trace, never to be seen again. And then months later, that same airline flies over Russia to be shut down, where 290 people are killed as it crashes to the ground. Do you think the family members of those people believe that we're still in bondage? That there's a world out there that, that is full of death and decay and suffering? You think we live in a world that longs for an exodus? We live in a world where people hijack and infiltrate people's homes and computers to take pictures of them in private conditions to sell them to the media. You think those movie stars are wondering why this world is the way it is and why their privacy has been abandoned? We live in a world where Ebola virus has killed more than 6,000 people. Do you think the family members of those people are wondering why this world is the way it is? That why we still suffer and why we still agonize and pain over death and sorrow and mourn? Man, my tears haven't been wiped away. They're fresh. My mourning isn't done with. I'm in the midst of it. We live in a country where more than 40,000 people this year alone will commit suicide. How many of these people are just sitting in their rooms longing for hope? For some sort of meaning and purpose? Do you think this world is in bondage and decay? Do you think that these people recognize the suffering that exists all around us? And of course they do. And this may seem extreme, right? Think of the, child, the, the child who, who maybe across the street watches from her steps as her dad stands over her mom, ready to strike her fist down, or his fist down upon her. Think about the person on the city street right now trying to survive the cold nights that we're having. Think of the fact that we as a nation spend $600 billion on Christmas when throughout the world there are children dying because they can't afford a $10 net to cover their bed at night. Or they can't afford a $6 water filter. And then I think of the impatience that I have with my children in the mornings in particular and going to bed at night. I think of the times where I don't love my wife as I should. I think of the times when I don't respect my parents as I should. Do you think the world longs to be released from the bondage it's in? Do you guys feel it? Do you think we long to be released from the burden and the pain that is all around us? I'm going to invite Emily and the rest up now. You know, I, I think back to how we began, and there's a, a little girl sitting on a stairs, and she is listening to her parents scream at each other. And we, as people who have been liberated already, right? We are Exodus people. We are liberators as sons and adopted into the family of God. That is a responsibility we now have. I think of that little girl, and she's like, man, you know, maybe my parents are screaming at each other because... Maybe my parents are screaming at each other because, um, because money is short. 
And I, I know that's a huge tension in my household, and I know money is tight right now. And, and, and why are there so many Christmas gifts under the, name with, under the tree with my name on it? Maybe I'm the reason why money is short, and maybe I'm the reason why my parents can't get along. And so we have this hope embedded within our hearts, right? Can I get a show of hands? Who's received the hope of Christ? Right? Who's received the liberation of Christ? The wide-scale exodus has begun to penetrate through us. Well, we have a responsibility then. And if you're an educator and this little girl comes into your school and you can see that she's downtrodden and she is depressed because she thinks she is the reason for the horror in her household, then you have a responsibility as someone who has been released from bondage to engulf her in your love to show her truth, to speak peace and life into her heart. Or we think of all the men and women in encampments who are like, man, I I don't know how I'm going to survive this winter, right? The cops just came and slashed my tent. I don't even have a pair of gloves to wear. I I have a single pair of socks and some shoes. There's no way my toes are going to make it through this winter. And we're at the stores and we're like, man, you know what? I'm buying all these things for my kids. I'm buying all these things for my relatives. And I am an exodus person bringing hope to where hopelessness is. I am a liberator bringing peace to the world that is suffering and in bondage. What is my responsibility? Man, I'm going to pick up a pair of gloves. I got money in the bank. I'm going to buy a tent. I'm going to invite that person to my house for Christmas dinner. Do you see how being an exodus person, a liberator, begins to change the way we interact with the world around us? It it begins to change our eyes as we walk down the store shelves, and all of a sudden I'm like, man, you know what? We have shared meals every second Friday night. And as I'm grocery shopping, why don't I just throw a couple extra things into my cart? So that come shared meals, I can present someone with a basket of food so that they're going to survive another week. And as I'm shopping for my kids, man, why don't I just pick up an extra couple of gift cards so that, so that I can go and I can present a, a person who is in need this, this holiday season with a, a meal or a gift. And as I'm an educator and I, I'm going to work and I see these kids who are downtrodden and depressed, well, my responsibility is to engulf them in the love I have received. As I am an exodus person, I am a liberator. God's grand scale exodus, his return from exile now works through me. And my friends, it works through you too. Do you believe that? That is what Jesus' birth into this world is about. 